Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are doing our very first Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, the story of success. Mate, Malcolm Gladwell, super popular, super well-selling author, of a whole bunch of popular books like Blink, The Tipping Point, and of course, Outliers, which is probably his most well-known, most popular book. Mm. So in the book, he introduces us to one kind of outlier after another. So the geniuses, the business tycoons, the rock stars, and the big dog software programmers. And he tries to uncover all these little secrets that made them so remarkable and so uh, far ahead of the rest of the pack. And he, of course, it's something probably that we don't expect as well. He talks about how most biographies, if you read them, or stories of success, starts off with this guy or girl who's born into just a modest middle-class upbringing and through their own sheer grit and determination and talent, they fight their way to the top, overcome adversity, um, get past all the disadvantages and become this self-made superstar, uh, which is a story that everyone tells, but Gladwell says that's pretty much completely a crock of shit and Mm. they miss all the extra things along the way that they don't like to tell or don't even realize in a lot of cases. Absolutely. So this book looks at all these extra little things that kind of happened and kind of overlaid on top of each other to give them this extraordinary uh, luck, so to speak, to put them above the rest of the pack. And there's a few things in here, like he says that uh, how the New York uh, legal landscape is dominated by Jewish lawyers, about how um, Korean uh, pilots went through this bad lot of a lot of plane crashes, why Asians are so good at maths and things like that, that he, he talks about is due to some of these things that make people outliers. Mm. So the definition of an outlier, number he's got two here. Number one is something that is situated away from or classed differently from a main or related body. And number two is a statistical observation that is markedly different in value from others of the sample. So obviously, if most people, if you say think of a bell curve, most people are average at everything. There's a big chunk of people in the middle. And then you've got the outliers way at the very tail, way at the end that have gone way past the median and the mean and have gone to become an outlier. He kicks off the book with part one, which I really, really like to start, opportunity, with starting off with the Matthew effect. Mate, hit us, mate. What's the quote from the Bible, which I, <laughs> I struggled to uh, read myself? You did. <laughs> For unto everything that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Nice. So to translate that, essentially once you get something, you get more of it. And if you don't have it, it's hard to get any. Mm. And even starts to go negative. So uh, he said, like, success begets success. When you get successful, it's easy to become more successful. Absolutely. So if you're rich, you're able to invest and get dividends on your returns. If you're poor, you're the one borrowing the money off the rich and then you're paying them interest. So it's easy to get poorer when you've got nothing. It's easy to get richer when you've got something. But this is something that happens in every field. And I really like the analogy he uses of trees. So he says, biologists talk about the ecology of an organism So the tallest oak in the forest is the tallest not because it grew from the hardiest acorn. It's the tallest because no other trees blocked its sunlight. The soil around it was deep and rich and no rabbit chewed through its bark as a sapling. So there's some of these out, these other circumstances. But the big one is the the light. Once it was Mm. tall enough, it got all the sunlight and the trees around it didn't block the sunlight from it. So once it, it had kind of a positive feedback loop in terms of gains. That's it, man. He says that we all know successful people that come from hardy seeds. But we don't know enough about the sunlight that warmed them, the soil in which they put down their roots, and the rabbits and lumberjacks they were lucky enough to avoid. So he says the book, it's not about tall trees, it's about forests. And the first forest he talks about is Canadian hockey. 
and he was looking through the uh, Canadian, obviously massive ice hockey fans, and it was like the championships of the, the juniors, so the 17, 18, 19-year-olds, who were the best of the best, and were going to go on to become the future stars. And he says that, you know, you assume that most sport and selection is a meritocracy and that the best people become the best. It doesn't matter if they're rich. It doesn't matter who their parents are. If they're really good at hockey, they're going to be the ones who are the, the future all-stars. So he was having a, a very good look at the Canadian Junior Hockey Championships. So these, these young people, the 17 and 19-year-olds, they were playing off in a championship. And he was trying to look at why these ones were the ones playing off the championship, right? So they're the, these are the outliers. There's probably tens of thousands of, of hockey players per one who make it to this absolute extreme level. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about the people who get to these two teams that are the very best of the juniors, it's not just they were the best 17-year-olds and they got picked. It's a long process of they first start skating when they're four or five years old, and then when they're nine or ten, they start joining like the rep side. So the best of their league will join a team. And then it essentially gets filtered the best of the best of the best all the way up. You know, then the, at 15, there's this major junior A where the best 15-year-olds jump in. And then by the time you get to 19, it's the best 19-year-olds. Mm. And it's pretty much the same in every country in terms of the, the top sport. They're picked from you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And there's always these rep sides or these you know, state sides or the national team uh, the whole way up. Mm. So in one of the pages, he shows us a big bunch of statistics and he says, what what do all the top ones have in common? And you have a good look at it and you really can't, you know, the first look, looking through it, they all look the same. You can't really pick through something. But he kind of blows you away a little bit. He says specifically, look at the, the year they were born. And yeah, they were born roughly the, the same time. Then he says, look at the month they're born. And it turns out, look, most of them are actually born in between January, February, March. Mm. And, you know, the high proportion of the team is in the first three months of the year. He says that, yeah, 40% are born between January and March, 30% between April and June, 20% between July and September, and 10% between October and December. And you think if people were picked on a full individual merit, you know, based solely on their own performance and their own ability, it should be roughly 25% from each quarter of the year. But it was this massive skew towards the front half of the year. And it's all like, why are all these people born in January, February, March, and hardly anyone born in October, November, December? It was the big reason was, or the explanation is, the eligibility for age levels start at January 1st. And so by the time you get to become this 20, 25 year old adult, you'd think that it's evened out and that it doesn't matter when you were born. But he says that when you're 10 years old and you're joining the first ever rep side, someone who turns 10 on January 2nd is almost a full year older than someone who turns 10 on December 30th. So you're like 363 days older and you're both playing in under 10s. Hmm. And the thing is that when you're nine or when you're 10, there's a big, big, big difference in terms of size, in terms of growth, in terms of uh, ability, or just even coordination. Yeah. So you're absolutely, there's a big difference there, and it, it is an unfair advantage. But this is where it gets back to the idea of the Matthew effect, right? To these people at the very start, they've got this slight advantage over the others because mm -hmm. they're a year older. But... The, the representative leagues start choosing their best players when they're about 10 or 11 years old. So these people who are, who are a little bit older get chosen for the bigger leagues and then they have to practice a bit more after school mm. and they play extra games during the week. So then the, the accumulated benefits kind of uh, compound on each other 
And before you know it, the differences are absolutely huge. Exactly, man. So when you're 10 years old, the people who are a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit bigger get picked. But once you're in the rep squad, you get better coaching, better teammates, better competition. You're playing 75 games a year compared to 25 games a year, and you're training a hell of a lot more. So what are you saying that even though initially it was a small difference, just mainly because of size, that uh, benefit compounds due to selection, due to streaming, due to differentiated experience. And what uh, the, a guy called Robert Merton calls it is this self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's a false definition at the start based on some incorrect arbitrary difference, but the new behavior that becomes uh, because of that false definition makes it true in the end. So the best 10-year-old, even though it was wrong at the start to say he was best just because he was bigger, because he's done all this extra training, better coaching, better playing, becomes the best in the end. Mm, unbelievable. So it's a, this is the same kind of thing that happens across all kind of sports where they get picked for certain uh, representative squads at the very start. So in the case of English soccer, it's the same thing, except the cutoff date for age is September 1st. So they looked at 288 players there, and pretty much all the players were born between September and November and pretty much um, none between June and August. Mm, exactly, man. And it's repeated all over the world, US baseball, European international soccer, the, whatever the cutoff, arbitrary age cutoff date is, the people born just after that who are almost a year older tended to be the ones who are the best later mm. in life. And I guess the most concerning thing isn't just international sport. It also happens in education. So say if someone starts earlier or versus later in school because a school year is obviously uniform, but someone could be half a year or nine months older, the ones who are a bit older get selected for the accelerated learning program. They get better teaching, they get more attention. And the ones, again, this Matthew effect, the ones that were picked at the start, it makes a self-fulfilling prophecy that by the end, they're the ones who are the best. So hold off your kids for that extra year, right? Yeah, well, he, he says like the way around it, Denmark has, they don't pick accelerated learning stuff in primary school. They wait till the initial maturity level balances out a bit more. Mm, unbelievable, man. And back to your stats, I know you said it already, but come to think about it, so you've got a 40% chance of getting selected in this elite squad if you're born between Jan and March compared to 10% between October mm. and December. So despite how hard both parties are working, you are four times as lucky just by being born at the start yeah. of the year. Just something you've got no control over. It's, exactly. It's pretty man. unbelievable. And what uh, the argument for having these, you know, picking 10-year-olds uh, to start their rep training early, he says that they do that so that they don't, the best talent doesn't slip through the cracks. And they say that, you know, getting on these kids early, starting them early, getting the extra training early is going to lead to better outcomes in the future. But what he says that really... By doing it this way, you're actually losing half to three quarters of the talent that slips through the cracks. Because the guy who's the best um, 10-year-old born in December, who's a year younger than the other 10-year-olds, essentially doesn't get a crack. He doesn't get to go to the early training. And essentially, this 10-year-old who was a jet misses out on all these accumulated advantages and essentially is lost to the system. So yes. he's saying that half to three quarters of the talent is, is squandered because of these um, arbitrary systems that we've got in place for selecting early talent. Mm. Bloody Matthew. That's it. Chapter two, man. Chapter two, the 10,000 hour rule, something that you often uh, have uh, misattributed throughout, <laughs> throughout the last two years of the podcast. And I, you correct me every time, but I keep making a mistake. So the 10,000 hour rule was created by Malcolm Gladwell. And the whole idea is... <laughs> it's fucking weird, mate. But 
uh, actually by Anders Ericsson. So it was a study that was born out of a good look at musicians around the world. Mm. So in the 1990s, he was at the Academy of Music and they were looking at the violinists and they divided the group up into stars, which are those with the potential to become world-class soloists. Second group was judged as good. And then the third group is unlikely to ever play professionally, but they're probably going to go on to be uh, a music teacher in the public school system. I don't know why that's such a bad thing, but <laughs> that was the bottom group. <laughs> but the bottom of the best in the, the Academy of, of Music. So they're probably good, but they're not, they're not the ones you know, off, the, off the TV just yeah. going, going nuts with their violin. So they're trying to work out what's the difference between these three groups. And they looked at initially all three started at the same time. They all started playing when they were four, five, six years old. And initially they all started playing two to three hours per week. And at that point in time, everyone was pretty much the same ability. But by the end, there was a big difference in terms of who became the stars and who became the future music teachers, which is the worst of the, of the good. <laughs> so the interesting thing was the best in their class began to practice more than everyone else from the very start. So at the age of nine, they were practicing six hours a week. Then by the age of 12, they were up to eight hours a week. By 14, 16 hours a week and up to 20, they were doing 30 hours a week. So they were putting in a shitload of hours. And by the age of 20, all the, all the ones who had clocked up the status of superstars, they'd actually accumulated 10,000 hours of work on, on their craft. That's it. So the bottom group had only practiced for four hours. The good group practiced for eight hours. And the, few, the superstars were 10 hours, uh, 10,000 hours of practice. Did mm. I completely fuck that? No, that was, that's, that was good. That we'll go 10,000 hours of practice, yeah. So 4,000, 8,000, 10,000. And what he says that the important thing about practice, uh, which we spoke about in So Good They Can't Ignore You, it's not just when a hot shit comes over and you play a little tune. That's not practice. The practice is this purposeful, single-minded, with the intention to get better, this deliberate practice of focusing on always getting better, not just playing mm. actual practice. And this 10,000-hour rule, he kicks off with some other examples in the book that kind of applies across industries where these people accumulate 10,000 hours and they're an absolute jet at what they mm. do. And it's because they've accumulated 10,000 hours, not because they were born with some kind of extra luck or they were mm. all of a sudden you know, natural in air quotes. It was because they put in the, in the work. Mate, the same, exactly the same thing as with pianists in that they started at the same time. They all started playing three hours a week, but the superstars increase the amount that they practiced all the time. And what's yep. important, he said, there was they couldn't find any naturals and they termed naturals as someone who effortlessly floated to the top without practicing a whole lot. And they also couldn't find any grinds, which is the one that they said, put in these 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, but they were still shit. So essentially, they were saying it was a pretty um, strong correlation in that there were no naturals, there were no grinds. All the ones that put in 10,000 hours became the stars and all the ones mm. that didn't weren't. Mm. He's got one example here of the Beatles, like the big, the big dog rock stars of the 60s. And he says in 1964, they were pretty much no-name band, just rocking, rocking in bars. And, and, and you know, before they knew it, they really took over the world, which seemingly mm. happened very quickly. Yeah, exactly. But, of course, it doesn't all work like that. They met this random dude named Bruno. Bruno said go to Hamburg. Mm. The Beatles got a lot of sex and a lot of alcohol, so they thought Hamburg's pretty good. We're going to stay here and play a lot. So they went over to Hamburg five times and they played a hell of a lot. The thing was they had to play eight hours essentially because in the clubs they were playing in, they were open for eight hours. They played the whole time. So they had to build stamina. They had mm. to build a massive repertoire and just play eight hours a day, seven days a week in Hamburg. Mm. So it, in this case, it's not necessarily going to be that the Beatles were born naturally talented. They had this extremely lucky break that no other bands did where they mm. had to play in Hamburg 
where Hamburg had this special culture where they had to just slog it out as a band all, all through the night and do big eight-hour kind of rocking sessions, right, mm. every night and upon night. So they were this rare band that had the opportunity to play so much together and clock up a lot of hours doing their jam. Exactly, and if you think, he says that over the sort of the five or six years leading up to their big burst onto the scene, they clocked up an estimated 1,200 performances. 1,200 performances, eight hours per night. We're looking at pretty much 10,000 hours, aren't we? 10,000 hours, and that's when they had their, their big success. And bang, they're the best in the world. And what he says that practice isn't the thing once you do, once you're good, it's the thing that makes you good. Mm. So most... Like 99% of, um, this is an Adam Jones study, so <laughs> you don't have to take this as gospel, but let's just say 99.9% of bands out there, they do not clock up 10,000 yeah. hours over a whole career. These guys happened to, and when they did, then they went bang and they were the big successes they were because of mm. the 10,000 hours. Exactly, man. The other thing that he relates into this section is uh, two Bills, Bill Joy and Bill Gates. Bill Joy, this dude who apparently they called the Edison of the internet, uh, and also, obviously, Bill Gates, who made um, Microsoft. Yeah, mate, Bill Joy is a bit of a no-namer, though, so we'll go with... <laughs> is he? Mate, he must be massive. We don't... Mate, you never heard of him. We'll, we'll go with Bill Gates. He's we'll much, go with Gates. He's much more, <laughs> much more well-known. But in the 1960s, so computers are really just sort of firing up. They're the size of a room. They cost over a million dollars in 1960s money. Computers are rare. If you found one, everyone wanted to use it, so you had to fight for time. And programming was excessive, uh, extremely tedious, where it was punch cards... If you messed up one punch card, you had to check the whole lot, proofread, a lot of patience and work out where the error was and fix it before you tried again. So essentially, it was really hard to become really good at programming, especially when you're so young and didn't have access to computers. Yes, that's right. So under those circumstances, it was exceedingly difficult for anyone to become an expert. Um, Certainly becoming an expert in your early 20s was pretty much impossible in Mm. those days. So you needed some lucky breaks to actually get some time on the computer in the first place. Man, he goes through a, a long story about Bill Gates's lucky breaks and he highlights like eight or ten different opportunities that Bill Gates got, as we said, these lucky breaks. So the first thing that happened was Bill Gates's mum was the daughter of a rich banker. So the family had money and Bill Gates went to a well-to-do private school and it was one of the very first schools to ever get access to computers. So I was just lucky there was like four or five schools in the world that had access to computers and Bill Gates went to that rich private school. Absolutely. Now, the second thing he had, his mother's club at Lakeside decided to pay for their computing time. Yeah, so as we said, it was expensive um, to get access to a computer and you had to keep paying and the the mother's club, like they made this big bake sale and thought we're going to put our money towards um, buying computer time. So that was a a lucky break that Gates had nothing to do with. Another another one was when the money ran out at the school, one of the parents worked at CQ, one of his mate's mums or something, and on the weekends, they were allowed to go in there and, and code all night. Yeah, so obviously CQ, this computing place that they'd work during the day, and then on the weekends and at night, the computers were sitting there idle, and lucky Bill Gates had a good friend who said, come and play around. Yep, and number four, I'll just roll through them. Gates found a job at Information Sciences, so whilst hanging around, these guys had to deal with him. He had to build a payroll system. But in mm. response, he could do as much coding as he wanted. Opportunity number five was he lived... In, within walking distance of the University of Washington, which got a computer system pretty early and he snuck in and used their computers. Yeah. Number six was the university had free computing time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if you're super keen as Bill was, then you could go in there and get it done. Yeah, mate. Opportunity number seven, there was a company that needed some help with their computing and Bill Gates was known for loving computers and they gave Bill Gates the job. 
And then finally, number eight was Lakeside School let him take a term off to go work for his company writing code. Mate, so from when Bill Gates was in the eighth grade, he, was, he had this access to computers that almost nobody else in the world had. And he was able to you know, get a couple of jobs along the way, spend shitloads of time, obviously building up those 10,000 hours. And a quote from Bill Gates himself, he said, I had a better exposure to software development at a young age than I think anyone did in that period of time and all because of an incredibly lucky series of events. So yes. that's a quote from the man himself. Absolutely. So he had these eight extremely lucky events, all had this one thing in common that let him have more time on the computer software developing, whereas no one in the world had all these eight combined. So he was an outlier in terms of how much time he was allowed mm. on the computer, and that's how he became an outlier in terms of being an absolute superstar coder. And if you think about it, he's probably not the only person that had this opportunity in that there were a whole bunch of kids at the school that could have had the same opportunity. So you can't discount that Bill Gates worked really, really, really hard to get his 10,000 hours. But the thing was... He wanted to learn. He was keen to learn. He wanted to, He saw this big opportunity. He became obsessed with it. But essentially, he needed those lucky breaks to get the opportunity to get the 10,000 hours. People on the other side of the world or in, even in the next city didn't have the opportunity to get 10,000 hours. But because of these series of lucky events, he had the opportunity to put in the time to become an outlier. So that's the first big pop-up reason, and that is the 10,000-hour rule. The next reason, he, he does a bit of research into the 75 richest people of all time in America, right? So no, got, in everywhere, mate. The whole human the history. So we're talking thousands of years all across the world. So we're talking uh, kings and queens. We're talking rich Egyptian Cleopatra. pharaohs, Russian tsars, um, all the way back Jesus. that far. All, he, is Jesus in there? No, nah, Jesus wasn't that rich, mate. He was poor, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, and obviously taking into account inflation. So this is the 75 richest people in all of human history. Yeah. So he was... One remarkable thing, and again, he puts the stats on the page and you really can't pull anything out yeah. of it, but Big Papa Gladwell is one of the top researchers in the world. <laughs> he found something really interesting, and that was that 14 were from America and they were all born between 1831 and 1840. So a wholly crazy. disproportionate amount of people were born into a very small time frame in all of history. We're talking you know, thousands of years all around the world and almost 20% are from a single country within a, a decade. And we're talking like John D. Rockefeller, who's number one on the list, Andrew Carnegie, who's number three on the list, J.P. Morgan's number 57. And they're all between, born between 1831 and 1840. Mm. So he, he had a look at this, this time in history and he says between 1860s and 1870s was the greatest transformation ever of the whole American economy in history. Yeah. So it was just after the Civil War. And so the reason why being born between 1830 and 1840 was perfect was that if you were born in the 40s you missed it you were too young at the time this revolution was happening and you missed it all it was too late and if you were born too early in the 1820s then you were too old your mindset was shaped by the civil war paradigms of just you know conservative you didn't you weren't able to see the future but if you were born in this narrow nine-year window between 1831 and 1840, you were at the perfect age where you were just coming into you know, your 20s and 30s at the time. You were ready to capitalize on the future and you weren't so close-minded mm. that you just saw these amazing opportunities. And again, I highly doubt that you're going to read that in any of these guys' big autobiographies. Mm. You know, it's just simply that they were born in exactly the mm. right time and the exact right age exactly. in their kind of development to be able to take... Um, control these big economic opportunities that were on offer. So he says that 
next, if you look at all of the current successful um, computer and software billionaires, if you look at the three guys at Microsoft, you've got Bill Gates, who was born in October 1955. You've got Paul Allen, which was his 2IC at Microsoft in January 1953. And you've got Steve Ballmer, who was the third in charge, which was March 1954. And you might be thinking... All these three dudes are obviously mates they'd met somewhere, so they're all around the same age, so it must be just a Microsoft thing. Absolutely. So there was a, a big article that came out in 1975 that basically outlined it was the best year ever of the personal computer. So it was mm. really the year the personal computer kicked off. So he says if this time in 1975, if you were more than a few years out of college, mm. like the, the example from earlier... Pretty much you if belong, you're late 20s or older, you've missed it, yeah. Exactly. You belong to the old paradigm, and if, you were, if you're in a too-good-a-job and you've just had your kids and all that kind of stuff. You're way too old for this kind of stuff. Mm. But if you were born too late, then you're too young to yeah. take control you're of it. you're a 10-year-old kid. You've got nothing to... Yeah. So he says, ideally, the absolute perfect age to take control of the whole revolution in software development was to be about 22 to 21 in this year. So, mm. yeah, born in 1954 to 1955. And as we said, all those, the three top dogs at Microsoft were all of that. But then if you look, Steve Jobs from Apple, February 1955, Eric Schmidt... Uh, the third guy at Google, April 1955. Bill Joy, our friend from Sun Microsystems, November 1954. So you see this small window of two years where all the biggest of big dogs of computing and software were all born in this time. Mm. Absolutely, crazy, man. man. Really now, I reckon if uh, this, this book was 2009, I, uh, obviously no global, I haven't done the research and just making it up here, but if you looked at all the social media guys, and the sharing economy guys of Uber, Airbnb, Facebook, YouTube, yes. um, Snapchat, Instagram. I mean, if you looked at that now and saw all those guys, I reckon they'd tell a similar story in terms of their Asian development at that point in time that this was all kicking off. Yep. Just I'd, speculation, but yeah. I'd have to totally agree, mate. Yeah. But um, yeah, speculation is probably a good bridge into, into uh, commenting on what we thought of the book. Mate, uh, so that, <laughs> mate, that's only that's two chapters out of nine. So obviously in, in Juggernaut Month, mate, we've got all these massive juggernauts that are so good, full of gold, we can only fit it only so much in. There was, after this, it was talking about geniuses and how having a massive IQ doesn't lead to massive success. There was more to it. Um, talking about how the Jewish lawyers took over the New York law, law landscape, talking about why Asians are so good at maths, talking about why certain pilots crash planes while others don't. Mate, I reckon this book is absolutely phenomenal. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, I reckon it's, I reckon it's a good book, man. Just good. <laughs> I, reckon, Just good. I reckon it's a good book. Yeah. But it's, a, it's one of those things we, we spoke about off air. It's, we came across the idea of motivated reasoning, which I think came in, whose book was... Um, Thinking Bets? Thinking in bets, and right? Juke. So it's the idea where someone who's extremely clever and intelligent can grab some kind of arbitrary thing in the world that won't be, doesn't necessarily need to be objectively true, but they have the intellectual capability to find reasons in the world to support mm. these ideas that might actually be false. Mm. So my opinion of Malcolm Gladwell is um, he, it seems so arbitrary, the reasons or the things he finds in the world, but he's got this absolute incredible intellect to be able to find supporting ideas in the mm. world to support things that might be false. Mate, I uh, completely disagree with everything you just said. I think you just uh, see things that most people miss in terms of he finds these reasons behind the reasons. So most people just think, oh, Bill Gates worked really hard, put in a lot of effort and just became the, the richest man in the world at one point in time. But mm. he's saying that success isn't just to do with an individual level. It matters to do with where you come from, who you are, who your parents are. Yep. So I think whilst it's... Uh, uncomfortable to think that you don't completely control your own future and that just by working hard you can get to the top 
Uh, mm. I think it's an uh, important, different look on the world. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's about maybe 50 to 60 different reasons you could find mm. about Bill Gates. Mm. And he's picked maybe two of them That's and then written enough. a whole book about it and then yeah. found these big reasons and then got a best-selling book. When there's a whole yeah. bunch of... He could have gone in 60 different directions mm. and found the motivated reasoning to support them and write his own book. I'd agree with that, Matt. Just like 12 Rules for Life, how that was a piece of shit as well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's true, man. I think it's. I think it is common across books and something yes. you really got to be aware of that. Yes. Hyper intelligent people can find reasons to support mm. false hypotheses yeah. and all that, which really sound like they're, um, you know, great ideas. That, mm. uh, but that, really, they could be a crock of shit. <laughs> could be. By great I'd ideas. agree with that, mate. That's why I think if um, it's important not to just read one book, but read a book a week, man. Absolutely, that's a good, that's a good way to do it. Um, obviously, Gladwell is not a. Uh, it's not a how-to book. It's more information looking at a different perspective. Um, but I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10, mate. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 6. A 6, yeah, that's rough. Fan of the week this week is Big Patrick G. Brown from Australia. At iTunes Review, top-notch podcast for the lazy reader. As a slow reader, I love listening to the Adams cut through the fat and give a solid summary of a range of books I may never get around to reading. Highly recommend Kenton Coming Boys. Five star cheers, Patrick G. Brown. The man. Get in touch. Podcast at whatyouwillearn.com. We'll shoot you. Allies. Great book. Or any other book you want.